Well, it's good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 10? For those of you who are new with us, it's good to see you. We are uh, doing a study in John's Gospel, and we have come to chapter 10, which we'll finish today. But uh, for several weeks during the COVID-19 lockdown, the Lord had laid on my heart uh, different things. Talk about that more in a second. But for this morning, let's just pick it up in verse 30, where Jesus said, I and my Father are one. Then the Jews, that would be a reference to the Jewish religious leadership. The Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself God. Now, last week we got as far as verse 34, where we looked at the statement of Jesus after the scribes and Pharisees picked up stones to kill him for blasphemy. And we know it was them that he was talking to them uh, because he had said that he and the father were one. And therefore, in their minds, rightly so, he was declaring himself to be God. And uh, he responded by saying, verse 34, is it not written in your law? I said, you are God's. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blasphemy because I said, I am the son of God. If I do not do the works of my father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that, that you may know and believe that the father is in me and I in him. Therefore, they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. Now, again, if you weren't here with us last week, when we studied this rather interesting response by the Lord Jesus to these religious leaders who picked up stones to execute him for blasphemy, go online and check it out. Very interesting how he responded to them. And uh, I don't have time to get back into it today, but check it out online. But this morning... I like to focus on the statement Jesus made almost in passing in verse 35, where he said, the scripture cannot be broken. The scripture cannot be broken. Now, by saying this, Jesus was expressing his belief in the inspiration of the Jewish scriptures, our Old Testament, that they were infallible writings which must be fulfilled. Something else he referred to them as the scripture, singular, and not as the scriptures, plural, indicating that he believed they originated from a single author, the Holy Spirit, as one unfolding message. It's not the words of God, it is the word of God, from cover to cover, right? It's one unfolding message given by one author, writing through 66, well, writing 66 books, 40 different authors, but one ultimate author, the Holy Spirit, writing through people. We'll talk about that more in just a second. Understand, as we just pointed out, that Jesus made this statement to the scribes and Pharisees who were very, who were ultra-conservative in their theology. Uh, they believed that all Scripture, all of their Jewish Scriptures, which they called the Tanakh, they still talk about, call that today, uh, that they believed that all of the Jewish Scriptures were inspired by God. Now, that was in contrast 
uh, to those who were liberal in their theology and view of the Jewish scriptures, the Sadducees. The Sadducees. The Sadducees were a sect of Judaism who were materialists, extreme materialists. And as such, they didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in angels or miracles. They didn't believe in life after death. Okay, that's why they were sad, you see. They didn't believe in life after death. No resurrection. Um, and so today we would categorize them as theological liberals. Men who give God's word lip service but don't hold to a high view of scripture. Uh, since the sads, as I call them, didn't believe in the supernatural, well, they didn't believe the Jewish scriptures were divinely inspired, supernaturally revealed word of God. They didn't believe that. In fact, they rejected all the Jewish scriptures as not being inspired by God. Uh, they believed they were simply the words and teachings of men, all except for the first five books of the Jewish scriptures, which is called the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, Genesis through uh, Deuteronomy. Those they did believe were inspired. That's why when Jesus uh, talked to them and witnessed to them, he only quoted from the first five books of the Bible because he knew they didn't believe anything else was inspired, all right? Consequently, they didn't believe, of course, as Jesus did, that man should live by every word that proceeded from the mouth of God, Matthew 4, verse 4, because they didn't believe in what the theologians called the verbal, plenary inspiration of the word of God. Now, I'll just quickly define that. It sounds kind of, these theologians use a lot of big phrases, okay? And uh, they're kind of intimidating. But they have very simple, I don't know why they just don't say it simply. They got to have some big fancy word, right? But verbal inspiration carries with it the idea that every single word in the Bible is there by design. I mean, if every dot of the I and cross of the T, every jot and tittle was put there by the Holy Spirit, then every word, all right, also would follow that every word in the Bible was put there by God and uh, without exception. Plenary means all parts of the Bible are equally authoritative. And so the first five books of Moses don't carry more authority than anything else in the Old Testament. And the four Gospels will say, don't carry any more authority than the rest of the New Testament. I was talking years ago to a Nazarene pastor, okay, good guy. And we got to talking on the subject uh, of, of God's word. And he said that his denomination believes that when the Bible speaks on spiritual topics, it's inspired, it's never wrong. When it speaks on scientific subjects, it's prone to error. Because their group is trying to give a concession to the evolutionists. There's a lot of Christians who think it's not very intellectual sounding to say that we don't believe in, the, in evolution, which I think most, hopefully, all evangelicals don't believe in evolution. Uh, we believe that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and uh, that's how everything came about, okay? I don't know why it seems more uh, intellectual to believe everything came from nothing all by itself. That's the evolutionary model. Uh, is that, that's more intelligent than in the beginning an all-wise, all-powerful God created everything? Well, wisdom is known by our children. You could figure that out for yourself, all right? But listen, whenever a spiritual leader, like a pastor or professor today, whenever they don't hold to a high view of Scripture, listen to me. They're not going to teach it with any kind of conviction or authority because in their mind it isn't inspired by God and therefore it can't be trusted as his word. 
Of course, that wasn't true of Jesus' preaching and teaching. I mean, he knew he was proclaiming God's word, God's truth. And as such, he taught with power. In Luke chapter 4, verse 32, I love how the Amplified puts that. Uh, it says, and I'm quoting now, uh, they, the ones he had been preaching to, uh, they were amazed at his teaching, for his word was with authority and ability and weight and power, as the Amplified puts it. Jesus spoke with authority because he knew he was declaring God's word, God's truth, right? And again, guys, this is the single greatest reason why today so many pastors and preachers don't preach with or teach with any kind of power or authority because they don't have a high view of Scripture. They have a low view of Scripture, all right, a low view of Scripture. They teach that the Bible is a collection of man-made myths, legends, allegories, moral uh, principles, all brought together under a single cover. And you know what? We can learn some things, but listen, you can't take it literally as the inspired, inerrant, divine word of God. Now, let me stop here and give you what the Bible says about itself. Whenever we're talking to people about the Bible being God's word, you always start with what the Bible says about itself, because if the Bible doesn't claim it's God's word, then that's where we end the conversation. Now, after you have shown what the Bible says about itself, then you can go to the external. you got the internal evidence of what the Bible says about itself. Then the external evidence is prophecy, history. There's a lot of things that we could bring in. I'm not going to do that today. Uh, just to give you kind of a working knowledge, though, that uh, we need to see, first of all, what the Bible says about itself, what Jesus apparently believed about the Word of God, and how we as Christians, much how we as Christians must approach the Bible if we're going to experience it as living and powerful in our own lives and be able to preach and teach and share it with others, with authority, share it with others who are, we are witnessing to, right? The foundational pillars upon which the Bible rests and without which it falls are these, all right? And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these because I just want to give you a quick working knowledge, all right? Four principles upon which the Bible stands. Call them pillars, call whatever you want. They are inspiration, inerrancy, infallibility, and sufficiency. Those four. Let's start with the inspiration of the Scriptures. The classic passage is 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, where Paul the Apostle said, All Scripture, not most Scriptures. Aren't you, aren't you, if he would have said most Scriptures, that would have been like me saying, Hey, come over and enjoy a delicious dinner. Most of it is poison-free. I put a little bit of poison in there. Look, as my pastor used to say, either the Bible stands together or falls apart. Don't tell me it just contains God's word. That doesn't help me. Because now it's, I have to depend on man to tell me what is God's word and what is not God's word. You get into craziness like the Jesus Seminar people. I mean, it is nuttiness, okay? So all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The word inspiration there in verse 16 is a translation of the Greek word theonoustos, theonoustos, which literally means God breathed. God breathed. The idea being that God breathed out his word into the hearts and minds of the writers of the Bible. 
And as they spoke it forth and wrote it down, well, when they wrote it down especially, uh, their writings became the uh, holy scriptures, sacred writings. Again, the idea is that God breathed life into the scriptures very much like he breathed life into Adam. Remember Genesis 2 verse 7? The Lord formed, the Lord God formed Adam out of the dust of the ground and breathed into him, into his nostrils, the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And so God breathed life into the scriptures. How? By inspiring human agents, human uh, instruments, all right? But he breathed life into the, into the scriptures the same way he breathed life into Adam. And even as Adam became a living soul, Hebrews 4.12, the word of God became living and powerful. And it has the power to, to, to recreate your life, to change you in a profound way. We'll talk about that more in a second. But guys, just as Adam was, a, was the direct creation of God, he didn't have a mom or a dad, he was the direct creation of God, even so the scriptures are a direct creation from God. Yes, God used human instruments, but hu human instruments were not the source. God was the source. They wrote down what God told them as they were moved by the Holy Spirit because he was inspiring them. You can check out 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21. Talk about that, how that, uh, you know, holy men of God, they moved, they spoke, they wrote through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit working through them. And so Paul the Apostle, guys, tells us that the scriptures were inspired by God. They were God-breathed. And let me just say this before we move on. Some people have a uh, misunderstanding. They think that God uh, dictated, dictated, that the, uh, dictation, okay, that God was, you know, gave dictation and, and these writers just wrote it down. That's not true. The Bible is a miracle on so many different levels, but one of them is that the Holy Spirit working through human writers, he spoke to them and they wrote down what he said. But when they wrote down what he said, their own writing styles, personalities came through. The writings of Moses are different in style and all than the writings of Paul. Uh, Isaiah from, from, we'll say, uh, uh, James. That's a miracle. And the idea was that even as the Holy Spirit moved in the hearts of these men, spoke to them, as they wrote everything down, their own personalities, their own styles came through. But listen to me. The final product, the end result was that they were absolutely, uh, they were absolutely error-free in the original autographs. What does that mean? That's a term theologians use. It simply means the original handwritten manuscript of each biblical writer. So when Moses wrote down the five books that start our Bible, um, his own personality style came through. The final result was the Holy Spirit kept the final product error free in the original autograph. Now, of course, down through the centuries, Moses' writings have been copied and recopied and so on, so that finally we have a copy in our laps today, and that's another miracle. You've all played that game where you get maybe 30 people in a circle at a birthday party or when you were a kid, and the first person whispers into the, the, the person next to them, and they whisper, and it goes, and by the time it comes to the last person, it is nothing like the first person said, right? And that's what critics say about the Bible, is it was transmitted down through history. 
It got loaded with errors and things. It can't be trusted. Well, the Dead Sea Scrolls proved to us thousand years after the copy of the Old Testament we had 900 to 1,000 years later, they uncovered these scrolls in Qumran in Israel. And when they compared them, they were shocked. There was less than a, there was less than a half a percent variance. And some of that was just words, the spelling of words had changed. Uh, check out a document from 200 years ago in our country. You can't even read it. The letters don't look the same. The words are all messed up. And of course, the, the authors, the, the copiers would bring in the new spelling. And, and, and then critics say, well, this is full of errors. No. Uh, there might be a, a variance and variations of things, but it's the same message. All right? And so, guys, that brings us to the second foundational principle. These will go quicker, by the way. Well, at least the next two. <laughs> that brings us to the second foundational principle of the Word of God, the inerrancy of Scripture. Inerrancy simply means that the Scriptures are error-free, again, in the original autographs. Inerrancy contends that the Bible does not have any errors of fact or any statements that contradict. All apparent contradictions in Scripture are just that. They're apparent, not actual. If I had time, I'd give you some examples. Uh, there are things that appear to be contradictions, but they're not. Upon further examination, a little study, closer look, they don't contradict at all. Number three is the infallibility of the Scriptures. And, uh, you know, I'm just trying to give you a quick working knowledge. It's not my intent to spend a lot of time on this, okay? But uh, many Christians use the terms inerrancy and infallibility interchangeably, even though they are technically different, infallible being the stronger of the two terms. Inerrancy means without error, while infallibility means incapable of error. Sounds kind of like the same thing. The historic teaching of the Christian church is that the Bible is both inerrant and infallible. In other words, it is without error because it is infallible, or in other words, impossible to have errors. Now that sounds a little like circular logic. But listen, it flows directly and logically from the idea that all Scripture is God-breathed. If all Scripture is God-breathed, which means it comes, from, comes directly from God. It can't contain errors because God himself is error-free. And, and again, this flows from the truth that as coming directly from God and therefore being an extension of God. That's what the Word of God is. It comes directly from God but is an extension of God. It is impossible. It is impossible for his Word to contain errors. In other words, it must be infallible and therefore must be absolutely true, error-free, and perfect as God is perfect. That's the logic, okay? That's what we believe as evangelicals. I mean, if, if this word we have in our laps has come from God, it was inspired by the Holy Spirit, it came from God directly, God is error-free, God is pure, God is perfect, therefore His word has to be perfect because it comes, it was God-breathed, it came from God. It has to be perfect as God himself is perfect. I'll read you two scriptures. Psalm 119, verse 160. The entirety of your word is truth. Again, so glad that it says that. All of your word is truth. 
and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. Psalm 19, verse 7, we'll talk about that more in just a second, but the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. And that then brings us to the fourth foundational principle the Word of God is built upon, and that is the sufficiency of the Scriptures. Sufficiency simply means that everything we need in the way of truth to live our Christian lives is contained in God's Word. It doesn't need to be supplemented with any other source of knowledge or information. When it comes to an instruction manual on Christian living, the Bible is complete. It is sufficient. Turn to Psalm 19. One of my favorite sections on God's Word. We'll pick it up in verse 7. In all of these um, terms, the law of God, the testimony of the Lord, the statutes, it's all a way of saying the Word of God using different language. Okay? It's all the Word of God. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be, more to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Again, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. The word perfect is a translation of a Hebrew word that means whole, complete, or sufficient. The law of the Lord, the word of God is sufficient, is what the psalmist is saying. It conveys the idea that something is comprehensive, comprehensive, so as to cover all aspects of an issue. You don't need to go anywhere else. Everything you need for life and godliness is found in God's Word. Colossians 2, verses 8 to 10, don't let anybody rip you off with high-sounding nonsense and verbiage uh, by people with a lot of letters after their names that try to tell you the Word of God can't be trusted. All right? It's everything you need for life and godliness. It's all contained in God's Word. It is here, guys, with regard to this last principle that many evangelical pastors and leaders have strayed. Many of these men would defend the inspiration, the inerrancy, and the infallibility of the Bible with their last breath. And yet when it comes to the sufficiency of Scripture, they stumble in that many Christian leaders have come to believe that the Bible needs to be supplemented with the wisdom of the world. If Christians are to be listened fully mature, victorious, fruitful in their Christian lives. Probably the greatest example of this would be in the area of psychology. I was telling First Service that four years after I became a pastor, I decided, since I didn't know anything, to take a few courses uh, at a Christian Bible college near the house. And uh, so I enrolled in some very uh, nuts and bolts kind of practical stuff that I was going to need. And um, one of it was a, a counseling um, course 
you do a lot of counseling as Christians. I figure, well, I'm a pastor now. I better kind of learn how to do stuff, all right? And uh, talk about the foolish things of the world. Wow. Uh, anyways, so um, I started attending this class, and the uh, teacher was uh, an Assemblies of God pastor who had been in ministry for 30 years. Good guy. Good guy. In the course of his teaching, he made a statement that rocked me. It just took me back. He said, over the course of, he did a lot of counseling, by the way, over the course of all the counseling I have done, he said, if I would have only stuck to the Bible, I would have missed it many times. It was because I blended the Bible with psychology. And here's what he said. You must take the secular and the sacred and blend it together to, to come up with a superior counseling methodology. Now, I've only been a pastor four years. I know what Psalm 19 says. That God's word is pure and it's perfect. I also know what the Bible says in James and in 1 Corinthians that the wisdom of the world is, is earthly, sensual, and demonic. It's foolishness. And so I knew immediately, you're going to tell me. You're going to take what is pure and perfect and blend it with what is what is faulty and what is sensual and is demonic and polluted and somehow blending the secular and the sacred is going to give me a superior counseling methodology? Oh, that was really upsetting to me. Although I was very kind and I didn't press it. I wanted to get a good grade. I just <laughs> but I, I never forgot that. We talked after class. Um, see, he bought into a lie that a lot of pastors are, have bought into and are buying into. And that is the Bible is insufficient to handle the complex problems of today's society. It's got to be supplemented with the wisdom of the world. They wouldn't put it that way, but, you know, psychologists and so on. You realize that much of psychology, although it has been passed off as a science, is actually a religious system that puts man at the center of life and not God. Christianity puts God at the center, right? Psychology puts man at the center. And as such, it falls under the category of the religion of humanism. Humanism. You know, I just wonder what the church ever did for 1,900 years before psychology came on the scene, you know? Um, for 1,900 years, the cure of sick souls used to be handled by the clergymen in the church, which begs the question, what did Christians do before psychi psychology showed up? One person said, an expert in psychology said, well, they just lived very bad lives. What did they do? They flourished under the teaching of the word of God, the biblical counseling of godly pastors and other spirit-filled believers, and the love of the body of Christ was, was instructed by our Lord to bear each other's burdens by loving, encouraging, and praying one for another. 
And let's be honest, these people were not free of problems. You, you study the history of the church, they lived with all kinds of horrible things, famines and pestilences. They had pandemics. They lived with extreme poverty and um, persecution and disease and every other form of hardship you can imagine. And yet the word of God was sufficient for them. But listen, all that changed with the coming of psychology onto the scene. The devil pulled off a major coup when he psychologized the church. You realize that? At that time, recovery replaced repentance. Therapy replaced theology. The couch replaced the church. Sin was turned into sickness. And happiness replaced holiness as the chief pursuit of the Christian life. used to be if you were involved with a sin and you had a lot of guilt you were dealing with, you went to a pastor and they would confront you about your sin. They would tell you you need to repent, get right with God. And when a person did, that weight of guilt and condemnation was lifted off of them. Today, psychologists are telling Christians, don't go to your pastor. He's going to lay all kinds of condemnation on you. By telling you you're a sinner. You're not a sinner. You're a victim. It's not your fault. You don't need repentance. You need recovery. Come, I'll help you. At 100 bucks an hour, I'll help you. <laughs> I got a nice couch. You can, we can talk. You know. Guys, the result has been a disaster for the Christian church. One of the great masters in the field of psycho uh, psychology. He died in 2012. I went on this morning to, to, to verify. He did. He's, he's gone now. His name was Thomas Sass. Now, when I say he was one of the great masters in the field of psychology, whenever a conference was thrown, psychological conference, he was one of the guys that was speaking. Thousands and thousands would come to hear him because he was the guy everyone looked to for, you know, what they needed to be good psychologists. He was, a, he was Jewish, not a Christian. I believe from what I'm about to read to you, he grew up in a probably an Orthodox Christian home, kind of went off on his own, but he had no doubt that the teaching uh, that a lot of Jewish children get from their parents, in fact, in their bar mitzvah, you know. But uh, Thomas says seems to have saw the holes in his own profession. I know he did. In his book, listen, The Myth of Mental Illness. Did you get that? The Myth of Mental Illness. He said, and I'm quoting him, through psychotherapy, we have turned the salvation of sinful souls into the cure of sick minds. And I agree with him. Sad that it took an unbeliever, and hopefully he died a believer, I don't know. But if he didn't, it's sad that it took an unbeliever to tell Christian leaders that they're buying into a lie. You know what he went on to say in that book? This is astonishing to me. You Christians have the answer. You ought to take this back into the church. What's it doing out here with us, psychologists, psychiatrists? We've got nothing to offer. Wow. Another one of these great masters in psychology, again, 
one of the guys that everyone went to uh, when there was a conference. He was one of the speakers, R.D. Lang. R.D., I think he died in 88, 87. Here's what he said. I cannot think, these are secular people. I cannot think of one thing that psychology has offered the human race of any benefit in the area of interpersonal relationships in its entire history. He said, we haven't gotten beyond Plato, Aristotle, or Shakespeare. You know what he said while he was still alive, obviously? Uh, he said, in my current bout with depression. So, you know, if you were alive back then and were dealing with depression, hopefully you didn't go see Artie Lane. In my current bout with depression, the guy that everyone goes to for answers, right? He didn't have answers for his life. You know what he said? He, he said, I have found something that has worked better in my life to help me with the depression than any psychological principle I've ever learned. Are you ready for this pearl of wisdom? I hum a favorite tune. It would be funny if it wasn't so tragic. These people have nothing to offer in the way of helping people in their soul. That's an area that is limited to God's expertise. He created the soul. Hang on to that for a second. I hum a favorite tune. And yet Christian leaders, guys, by the thousands have bought into the lie of psychology, believing that the Bible must be supplemented with the wisdom of guys like Freud, Jung, Maslow, Rogers, Bettelheim, because the word of God isn't sufficient. We are living in complex times. I mean, we're not simple farmers like they were back then. The Bible might have worked for them, but we have complex issues today. And we need to have uh, information that is geared to our complex society. Think again. Think again. But, but our, our leaders, one pastor said, the money in churches that used to be allocated to hire on the staff godly pastors who would exegete and teach the scriptures is now being allocated to hire on the staff psychologists who are actually uh, promoting teachings that are contrary to the word of God. And yet we're being told that if we don't supplement God's word with the teachings of men, well, we'll never be mentally healthy and spiritually mature. That's what they tell us. Now let me stop here for a second and differentiate between the brain and the mind. Very important, all right? The brain is an organ, and it can be damaged. Uh, there are times when it doesn't work properly and needs medication to help it to become more functional, right? I take medicine for heart disease. The heart is an organ, all right? The heart can get sick. The brain can get sick. The brain is not the mind, and the mind is not the brain. The mind is a non-physical thing, and as such, it can't get sick because it's not physical. The mind is the soul of man. It's interesting, the word psychology comes from two Greek words, suke, which is where we get, you know, and then logos, a study of or a teaching on. Psychology is the combination of those two Greek words, suke and logos. And yet, psychologists have no business fooling around in the spiritual realm of the soul, the non-physical realm. I mean, there is a branch of psychology that 
studies human behavior. That is scientific. But when it moves from studying human behavior to explaining it and, and ultimately correcting it, you move from science to conjecture, what some have called scientism. It's a belief. It's a belief. Because you can't, you know, somebody has said if somebody breaks a leg, they can go to any doctor they want because all doctors have been trained in the process of setting a leg. You go to a psychologist for some problem in the soul, they got you doing everything from primal screams to beating pillows to the stuffing flies out to visualization and, and, and all these other things. Folks, they haven't got a clue. Not for themselves and not for others. Look, only the pure word of God, unpolluted with the wisdom of man, has the power to transform transform a life starting with yours and mine. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 2. I want you to turn to it because maybe you want to highlight it because it's, it's a great passage for this very thing. 1 Thessalonians 2. Pick it up in verse 13. For this reason, Paul said, we also thank God without ceasing because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as in truth as it is the word of God. Listen, which also effectively works in you who believe. Only the Bible is living and powerful. Only the Bible can transform a life. Listen, guys, a person doesn't need to, doesn't need to believe in the inspiration or the inerrancy, or the infallibility, or even the sufficiency of the scriptures to be saved. But if they don't believe those things, listen to me now, it will definitely affect the way they live their Christian life. I mean, think about it. How can a person, a Christian, be victorious and fruitful if they don't believe God, the Bible come, comes to them from God? If they don't believe it's from God, it's not inspired, it's going to be filled with errors in their mind, untrustworthy, how are they going to, you know, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. You're not going to have that. They're never going to be victorious and fruitful. If they feel the Bible is full of errors and therefore untrustworthy. You know, Jesus said in John 17, verse 17, Father, your word is what? Truth. Your word is truth. Again, Matthew 4, verse 4. Man shall live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And in John 8, verses 31 and 32, Jesus said, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And the context, context was Satan's lies. Only God's word can make you free from the devil's deception. Guys, that's spiritual warfare. I don't know if you realize that. Spiritual warfare is the battle between the truth of God and the lies of the devil. And the main battlefield where it is fought, listen, is in our minds for control of our thinking. That's why the Bible says a man or woman, as a man thinks in his heart, what? So is he or she. And the devil knows that only too well. He knows that if he can control the way we think, he can control the way we live. And so the mind is ground zero in spiritual warfare. People talk about spiritual warfare, casting out demons. That's part of it, small part of it. 
I mean, the warfare you experience on a daily basis is targeting your mind. And not only the way you think about God's word or about God himself. So what you think about your spouse? Do I really love them enough to stay with them the rest of my life? Or about your children in some way? Or, or whatever it might be. He is always trying to target your thinking. Because if he can get into your head and get you to think the way he wants, ultimately he can get you to live the way he wants. That's spiritual warfare. Very important that we understand that. And that is why we are commanded as Christians when we get saved to stop thinking like the world and to start thinking like the redeemed children of God we now are in Christ. Turn to Romans 12. And I know it's hot in here. We're almost done. Romans 12, one of my favorite verses on this subject. Romans 12, verse 2. Paul said, let me paraphrase. He said, do not be conformed to this world. And the idea is don't be conformed to this world's way of thinking any longer, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Turn to Ephesians 4 quickly. Ephesians 4, starting with verse 21. Paul said, If indeed you have heard, and have been heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, who is the word, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the way you lived before you got saved, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and listen, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. It's amazing as you go through the New Testament with this in your, in your, in your thinking. How many scriptures target your mind? How many scriptures admonish you to guard your mind, to fill your mind with the word of God, and so on? It's amazing. Do you realize that even your salvation started with your mind. The word repentance comes from two Greek words, metanoia, which literally means to have a change of mind that gets you to turn from the way you're living and come to Jesus. But once you get saved, it doesn't end there, right? The devil constantly is attacking your thinking. The, the, the main way our lives are changed as Christians is in the way we think. And that happens as we fill our minds with God's word. I'll read to you these two. You can write them down. Psalm 119, verses 9 and 11. How can a young man, how can a young person cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. Listen. Your word I've hidden in my heart, the idea is in my mind, that I might not sin against you. Colossians 3, verses 8 to 10. But now you yourselves are to put off all of these because you're Christians now you're not unbelievers anymore anger wrath malice blasphemy filthy language out of your mouth do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who has listened renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him again guys God's word God's word teaches us that godly living flows always flows from godly thinking which is only possible by the renewing of your mind through the word of God. 
Look, I'm absolutely convinced that the reason so many Christians are still living worldly lives is because, listen, they're still thinking worldly thoughts. This is rocket, not rocket science. Their minds are still conformed to this world's way of thinking because they have not allowed them to be transformed by the renewing that comes from God's Word. Look, that doesn't mean they're not reading the Bible at all or not going to Bible studies by, I kind of think they're not. You show me a really carnal Christian and I'll show you somebody who's not in the Word every day. Probably not going to Bible studies on a regular basis, if at all, okay? But when they do go, this is the, this is the thing I want you to understand. When they do read the Bible or they do go to Bible study, they take the information into their head and that's where it stays. That's where it stays. Now, that's the, that's the entry point. But if it doesn't come down into your heart, where it becomes part of your core convictions, it's one thing to, to, to have the Bible in your head and think, oh, yeah, that's, it's good. Yeah, it's, it's good. I think Nancy Pelosi said, oh, the word, it's good. Yeah, well, sure, it is good. But if you do nothing with it, it's bad. <laughs> Because you're going to be held accountable for what you know and don't live. Look, there's a lot of Christians who are carnal because if they even read the Bible, it just stays in their head and never becomes part of their core convictions. And it's your core convictions that motivate change in your life. Change. I mean, without those core convictions... The Word of God will never be living and powerful in your life and will never, ever transform you from the inside out. All right, look, we're done. I just want to finish the chapter. And I was going to break this into a, second, a separate message, but then as I was reading, I thought, you know, it dovetails with what we're talking about. How the power is in the Word, right? That the, power, the Word of God is the power to transform lives if it's faithfully declared and embraced. Look at verse 40. And he, Jesus, went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign. The Greek is miracles. John did no miracles. But all the things that John spoke about this man were true. And many believed in him there. Sometimes we lament that we don't have miracle working power like the apostles. How can I really serve God without that power to do miracles? In fact, a few years ago, there was something called power evangelism, which taught you cannot evangelize the lost unless you have the supernatural miracles to go along with your Teaching. Whenever I have somebody that will bring that idea to me, I take him to John 10. And I will show him that John the, the, uh, the Baptist, who Jesus himself said was the greatest prophet who was ever born of a woman on this earth, he did no miracles. But everything he spoke about Jesus was absolutely true, and people believed because of John's word. You know what? You have the power to work miracles. Do you realize that? You have the power to work miracles. 
Because when you faithfully declare God's word and you live it in your life and you faithfully declare it to somebody who's not saved and they receive Christ, you have just been a party to a miracle. They are now a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Bottom line, be faithful as you serve the Lord. Faithful. I'll close with this. Everybody in this room has heard of Charles Spurgeon, right? Pretty much everybody. Charles Spurgeon was called the Prince of Preachers because he was a phenomenal preacher, pastored uh, London Tabernacle uh, Church for years. Has anybody in this room ever heard of John Spurgeon? Probably not. I didn't. So I was reading this devotional. John Spurgeon was Charles' father. And he served the Lord faithfully for 46 years. In relative obscurity. We would never even have known his name if it wasn't for his famous son. And the author of this devotional said, When we stand before Jesus, it's not that we want to hear him say, Well done, thou good and famous servant. We want to hear him say to us, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Because that's all he requires of us. You embrace the word. You share it faithfully. You make Jesus the focus and not yourself or your ministry. And when you stand before God someday, he will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what I live for. I don't want to be famous. Too much headaches. You can't go out and eat dinner. You're famous. Everybody wants an autograph. I don't want to be famous. I want to live in relative obscurity. Just leave me alone. Let me have my hamburger. You want to come to church? I'll talk to you about Jesus. You know, I'll talk to you about Jesus at the restaurant. But I, I, I would rather be just anonymous, right? May God give us grace, right? Father, we thank you. For your word, your word is truth. We thank you, Lord, for your great grace, which is upon us, without which we can do nothing. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to continue to bless these studies in your word. And Lord, please stop the rioting. Please stop the killing, the shooting, the looting. Lord, please pour cold water on these hot emotions. And Lord, bring these folks to Jesus. We ask it all in his precious name. Amen.